If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Pastor Tim finished um, our uh, series through 1 Timothy last week. And uh, for the rest of the summer, we want to spend time in the Psalms. Uh, walking through the Psalms, different Psalms. You could call it, I, I jokingly call it surfing through the Psalms because it's summer. But um, yeah, Psalm 110 uh, today is what we will look at this morning. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's quickly pray and ask God to help us as we look together at this portion of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us and to write your law on our hearts. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what you are saying in your word. For your son's sake alone, amen. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, Hebrews 2, 8 through 9. The writer there to the, in the book of Hebrews says, we see him. We see Jesus, not with our physical eyes at present, but by faith. At present, he says, right now, we don't yet see everything as it will be in the future. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him by faith, crowned with glory and honor. If I was to ask you what passages of the Old Testament are quoted a lot in the New Testament, what would you say? I wonder what would come to your mind, um, whether it would be uh, passages from Genesis or Exodus or Isaiah. But I don't know if you would uh, believe it, but this psalm we're going to read and walk through this morning is the most quoted and alluded to passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Probably it's not listed amongst your favorite psalms, right? Psalm 23 might be one of your favorite psalms, or Psalm 91, or other psalms, Psalm 139. Usually Psalm 110 is not amongst people's most favorite psalms. And yet, I think it was the writer to the Hebrews' favorite psalm, because the whole book of the book of Hebrews is really a giant riff on Psalm 110. 
He opens up at his very first chapter and uh, quotes it and continues to repeat it all throughout the book of Hebrews, talking about Psalm 110 and the truths that it contains. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling those Hebrews and telling us, you and me today, that we see Jesus. We see Jesus. And David here sees Jesus. This Psalm 110 is simply pure gospel, pure message about Christ. So let's go along with David today, and let's see what he sees whenever he sees Jesus to come in the future. And so I've titled the sermon, obviously, We See Jesus, and you'll, you'll see how we break it up as we go along. <clears throat> J.A. Alexander, an old writer, points out this, that the center of this psalm is verse 4. <clears throat> the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the center, the beating heart of this psalm. And verses 1 through 3 and then verses 5 through 7 are built around that center. So today I want to first of all look at verses 1 through 3, then look at verses 5 through 7, and then lastly look at the heart of the psalm, verse 4, with you. We see Jesus. First of all, we see Jesus seated at God's right hand. David opens up and says, The Lord, Yahweh, God's name in the Old Testament, he says to my Lord, the word for Adonai, my Lord, my master, uh, my, my sovereign, my boss, the one who's over me. So God, Yahweh, the Lord who redeemed his people out of Egypt, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now in the light of the New Testament, we realize what David is talking about is the Father speaking to his Son within the divine trinity. The Father says to his Son, sit, take a seat at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. First of all, we see Jesus seated at God's right hand. We see Jesus in verse 1, seated with glory and honor. He is seated and told and invited and commanded to sit at God's right hand, right? Now, whenever someone is seated at the right hand, that, of course, means the place of favor, uh, the place of uh, honor and privilege and glory and blessing. So Jesus, by being seated at the Father's right hand, has been given the highest place of honor in the whole universe, no one else sits at God's right hand, but he alone. He is crowned with glory and with honor, and all of his enemies will be put under his feet. Now, if you were to look up some of the uh, <clears throat> ancient uh, world, for instance, you can, uh, I think it's in uh, Tutankhamun, right, King Tut. If you look at some pictures of him, uh, you can see a picture of his throne and his feet are on top of a footstool, and underneath the footstool are the enemies of Egypt. And the point is this, right? Um, we subjugate, we bring those rebellious peoples and our enemies and those who would oppress us, those who are hostile to us, we bring them under the feet of the king, and so peace is established for the people. 
That image is used throughout the scriptures to describe what the Christ will do and what he has done. He takes all of his enemies and puts them right under the feet of Jesus, subjugated completely. Sit at my right hand. Charles Wesley puts it this way, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Again, he says, he sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Right away, Jesus is promised victory. And because his enemies are our enemies, it's a promise of victory to us as well if we trust in Jesus. We see Jesus seated with glory and honor, but then in verse 2, we see Jesus seated with all authority in heaven and on earth. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The, the Father, having crowned his Son with glory and honor, Jesus Christ sends forth his mighty scepter. This, um, you know, and whenever you think about what a scepter is, in a lot of ways, it's just simply a, a club of sorts. It's a rod. It's a ceremonial rod. And whenever the Father gives this to him, he's entrusting to him all rule and authority on earth and under the earth and above the earth. He is the king who holds sway over all the world. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he sends forth his mighty scepter to rule and to reign. And the promise there, rule in the midst of your enemies, is a, is a wonderful promise because Jesus, though surrounded by those who would oppose him, rules over them. Despite all opposition, despite all that comes against him, he rules and he reigns. Thirdly, we see Jesus seated not simply with glory and honor, not simply with all authority in heaven and on earth, but we see Jesus seated and drawing all people to himself. In verse 3, the Father tells the Son, uh, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The people of God are described here, the people of Jesus, as offering themselves freely. Because whenever they see the grace and the love that are found in Jesus Christ, they freely come to him. They freely give themselves to him. This reminds us of John chapter 12. Jesus Christ said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He draws all kinds of people from every walk of life, from every race, from every background, to come to him, to find rest in him, to find peace in him, to find all that they need in him alone. The uh, phrase there that's a little confusing, from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours, is, uh, can be variously interpreted. Some, uh, some writers interpret this as referring to the dew as if uh, the people are like the dew on the grass, right? Sometimes you you can still go out. I mowed my, my yard recently. I hadn't done it in a while, so it was more like, uh, you know, uh, bush hogging. But, uh, but whenever you go out there right in the morning, the dew's covering it. And if I was to go out there and try to count all the little dew drops all over every single blade of grass, 
Um, that would take a while. Similarly, God's people are described as the dew. There's countless of them. Um, you should be encouraged here. God is not worried that too many people will be saved. He is not worried that it's going to be a few number. Heaven is described as packed, cram-packed, full of people. Every single one of them, the people for whom Christ saved. So, we see Jesus seated in verses 1 through 3. Then let's turn real quick to verses 5 through 7 um, to see what this king does from his throne. In verses 5 through 7, we see Jesus triumphing over his enemies. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, the, the Christ here, Jesus, the Son is at the Father's right hand, and he is shattering kings of, on the day of his wrath. This reminds us of Psalm 2. If you know Psalm 2, the second psalm, uh, uh, the second, right at the very front of the book of Psalms, um, we're told this about the Christ, that you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This Christ defeats all of his enemies and just shatters them into little pieces. Now, who are his enemies? Now, that's a really good question. Is the writer here thinking, and is this ultimately referring to physical kings on this earth or to something greater? Well, we see ultimately as we're told in the New Testament, that the ultimate enemies you and I face and the ultimate enemies that Jesus Christ comes to take down and triumph over are not flesh and blood, but are the rulers against the authorities, are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus Christ comes to shatter those things preeminently. He triumphs over his enemies, first of all, by shattering sin. By shattering sin. Sin entered this world, invaded this world through the serpent. And whenever sin invaded this world, this good world that the Lord had made, it brought us into subjection to it. Sin is a tyrant, isn't it? It holds us in chains and in bondage. Sin controls every thought, every feeling, all that we are, all that we do. It taints everything in us. It's a tyrant, a dictator. But Jesus entered this world and invaded the world that sin had invaded to set us free, to liberate us from those things. He shatters sin. And he did this when he climbed the cross. He climbed the cross, took his stand there, and amazingly, through utter weakness, he canceled the record of debt that we owe. He erased it. It's, Paul says he nailed it to the cross. Took it away. Charles Wesley, again, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. And all of you who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized, we are told in Romans 6, into his triumphant death. You were baptized into the shattering of sin. That's what your baptism reminds you of. 
being buried with him in baptism. But not only does Jesus shatter sin, but he shatters death. Death is the other enemy that we face. He shatters death by defeating sin. And through dying, through humbling himself, he defeats death itself, defeating our foe that holds us in fear, that holds us um, in terror. I, I've said this before, but you know, whenever you watch TV, one of the things you realize really quick is we are a society obsessed with staying young and living in this world. Uh, if you watch television, you would be shocked if you counted, just count next time, the amount of pharmaceutical commercials and the amount of commercials that help you fight aging effects. Now, I'm not saying don't use any of those products, but I am saying this. Those advertisements are feeding something that we think we need, which is to deny death. But the reality is, is you and I will die. It will come, and uh, we have to face it. It shows that there's this fear that we don't talk about death a lot, um, right? Even the phrases we use, right? People don't die anymore. They pass away. But Jesus is honest about our problem. Death is scary. Death is something to be afraid of. You're a fool if you're not afraid of death. But Jesus comes to shatter death. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Right? Jesus Christ overcame it in his cross and in his resurrection. He shatters sin, he shatters death, and he shatters the devil and all of his allies. Now, sadly, some of you are his allies today. You uh, are, uh, Jesus says um, that we are, we are either children of God or children of the devil. We are, we are either of the seed of the woman or we are of the seed of the serpent. And we're told that Jesus has come to shatter and to crush the devil, to crush this one who rules over the present darkness and to shatter all of his allies, all of those who unrepentantly uh, refuse to come to Jesus Christ, all of those who are still allied with the devil will also face his same judgment, which ultimately, as we see in Revelation, is to be cast into the lake of fire. So Jesus comes triumphing over his enemies, shattering sin, shattering death, and shattering the devil. So verses one through three, we see Jesus seated at God's right hand, and then verses five through seven, we see Jesus triumphing over his enemies. Now, in many ways, if we were to stop there, Psalm 110 doesn't really offer us anything new that wasn't said before in like Psalm 2, right? Because all those same themes are said in Psalm 2, right? In Psalm 2, God the Father says, this one's my son. He is going to reign over the world. I'm giving him the world's dominion. He's going to shatter his enemies. He's going to defeat them. Kiss the son lest he be angry. So, one through three and five through seven by themselves don't offer us anything new or novel. And yet we have verse four right smack dab in the middle of the psalm. And this is where the, the I think this is a really big reason why this psalm is one of the most, is, is the most quoted passage in the entire New Testament. How does Jesus 
triumph over his enemies and our enemies. How and why is it important that Jesus is seated? It is true that Jesus is our king, that he reigns over us, that he's our Lord, that he subdues our enemies, that he subdues our flesh. It's true that he is triumphant, he's a warrior defeating all of his opponents and our opponents, sin, death, hell, and the devil. But how does he do that? Well, verse 4 tells us, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, talking to the Son, the Father, telling the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see Jesus seated, we see Jesus triumphing, we see Jesus interceding as a priest forever. If we're honest, we're not really expecting, if, I mean, unless you've grown up in church and you know this psalm by heart or you know what's coming, but think about reading this psalm for the first time. This verse 4 is kind of odd. It's odd for a few reasons. First of all, whenever the Lord swears something, which he rarely does, it shows this is a really big deal. So when the, whenever you read that phrase, the Lord has sworn, the Lord doesn't just take oaths willy-nilly, right? He swears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, and he takes an oath here in verse 4. The Lord doesn't do this all the time. So the Lord right away, through David, is wanting us to pay attention and say, listen up to what I'm about to tell you. This is something that's going to rock your world. I have sworn. Second of all, it's odd because we hear about this guy named Melchizedek. Now, there's a number of things that we could talk about Melchizedek, and I'm sure I'll let you guys hash it out, who this guy was and, and all that stuff. But suffice it to say, Melchizedek is a character that shows up one time in two or three verses in Genesis chapter 14. He shows up and disappears and never comes back on the stage until Psalm 110 and then in Hebrews. It's fascinating. Melchizedek is a guy who's the king of Salem, and his name means king of righteousness. And whenever Abraham, Abram um, goes out and defeats this army of kings because they've kidnapped his nephew Lot, Melchizedek is called the priest of the Most High God. And he comes out with bread and wine to Abram after this victory over the kings and blesses him and says, uh, Blessed be Abram. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gives a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek, and then that's the end of the story. Who is this strange guy? We could talk about for a long time, but the key is, David is saying something unique here is happening. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, now, you know that in the Old Testament, under the, uh, under the government of Israel, you could not be a, both a king and a priest. Um, Uzziah was one of the kings of Judah, and you'll remember what happened whenever he tried to do the office of a priest. He was stricken with leprosy because God was telling him, it is not your job to be a priest. And so, there's going to be a new order of priesthood, not the Levitical priesthood, but one that precedes the Levitical priesthood, of Aaron and his sons, it's going to be after the manner similar to and like the order of Melchizedek. 
this one who is both king and priest in one office, this one who has no beginning and no end. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if I was to say, you have a priest, what, what comes to your mind? And I wonder if some of you are thinking, so what? I don't need a priest. Do I? Well, there's an article I found on CNBC, and it's called The Three Biggest Fears That Hold People Back in Life. And it's written by an emotional wellness coach. And do you know what the three biggest fears are that hold people back in life according to her experience? The fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough, and the fear of disappointing others. The fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough, and the fear of disappointing others. Now, I'm sure every single one of us can identify at some level with those fears. Um, I might be experiencing those right now. I don't want to fail in preaching this sermon. I'm sure Tim has some level of those fears every time he comes back up here. We don't want this to be a dud, okay? And you have fear of failure at your job or with your family. You have a fear of disappointing other people. You do have a fear of not being good enough. Now, why is that? Why are we so afraid of failure and not being good enough? Is it just something that, um, is it just a lie and we need to get over it? No, I think it's because deep down, we fear that it's true. And in fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's true. The Bible confirms this. Let me tell you this, what the Bible, the Bible clearly states about what you and I, what we can talk about these fears. You and I are failures. You and I are not good enough. And you and I are disappointing to other people, especially to God. You are. That's called sin. That's called being a sinner. And your greatest problem, and my greatest problem, is not that I feel like a failure. Your problem and my problem is that we are failures. We are sinners. You and I both. Now, what do we do with this? With this fear, this anxiety, this trepidation, this fear of failure, fear of disappointing everybody else, realizing we are not who we ought to be? Well, in our world today, people often turn to psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, etc. And there are many ways that these licensed professionals can help someone walk through their fears, talk about them, um, find solutions and ways to cope and deal with these things. And there is nothing wrong, do not hear what I am not saying, there is nothing wrong at all. It can be quite helpful to go to a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist seeking help. At the same time, it's very important that we say this as well. Your greatest need and my greatest need is not a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor. God the Father looked at our sin and saw we're a bunch of failures that disappoint him, break his law, and are not good enough, and he did not send a therapist. 
He sent a priest. He sent a priest. What you and I need is a priest. Now, what does a priest do? Why does the father swear and say, for everybody to know, you are a priest? What does a priest do? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 5, a priest is someone who's chosen from among men. And this person is selected to act on behalf of men, to serve in the interest of men in relationship to God. You might think also, um, you know, if you're a sports fan, um, you know that athletes have agents, don't they? They have agents who work on their behalf, who go and meet with the teams and, and make deals about the contract for the athlete. Similarly, a priest is somewhat like an agent. He goes and represents others, acting in the interests of men, of sinners, before the holy creator of the world. And a priest offers gifts and sacrifices to make up for what we have done to offend him. In the Old Testament, we see uh, examples of the kinds of people that need a priest. Uh, First of all, the guilty. The guilty need a priest. A priest acts on behalf of the guilty for those who have broken God's law. Whenever you read the Old Testament, you read the book of Leviticus, the center of the book of Leviticus is chapter 16. You know what chapter 16 is about? The Day of Atonement. The one day in the year where the high priest would go into the most holy place behind the curtain and offer a sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of all the sins for the whole nation of Israel to make atonement, to make reparations for what God's people had done. Now, he had to keep doing that year after year after year after year because they were guilty. The priest acts on behalf of the guilty, But also the priest acts on behalf of the unclean. Again, when you read the book of Leviticus, there's a a heavy amount of the book that's devoted to treating lepers, people with diseases, the unclean, the dirty, because they were separated from society. Their disease made them toxic, contaminated, impure. And the priest would go out and examine them The priest would declare them to be clean or unclean. And then in the process of making them clean, the priest would sprinkle the water and the blood on them. The priest would take the sacrifice and blood and and mark them and bring them from a state of uncleanness and dirtiness to a state of purity and cleanness. The unreconciled need a priest. A priest acts on behalf of those who are unreconciled to God, those who need him to be reconciled in this relationship that's broke and separated to be made right again so that God is no longer angry with us, and that's known as his wrath, but that he now is in a place of blessing us and loving us. And lastly, the priest acts on behalf of the fearful Those who are seeking refuge, you remember in Leviticus, it talks about the cities of refuge. And do you know who was supposed to live in those cities? Priests. So you could run to the city of refuge. And the priest would be there to take you in, and you were safe. Priests act on behalf of the guilty, the unclean, the unreconciled, and the fearful. That kind of sounds a lot like you and me. 
We are guilty. We have broken God's law. We are unclean. I don't know about you, but whenever I sin, I feel dirty. I feel unclean. And one of the things I, um, you know, doesn't it feel so good after a long day, long day at work and, or uh, whatever you've been doing outside, you've been sweating to, to get cleaned up. Until then, you kind of feel, you feel impure, dirty, and you don't want to sit on the couch because you might get dirt on the couch. You might get dirt, you might contaminate other stuff. You need to become clean. You feel unreconciled. You feel like there's something separating us or you feel afraid because you don't know the love of God. You need a priest. You need a priest. And here is the gospel to us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This one right here, Jesus Christ our Lord, is a priest forever. First of all, he is an unchangeable priest. The Lord has sworn and will not, absolutely will not change his mind. He has sworn by himself. We're told in Hebrews that the reason why God makes oaths and takes them is so that we will know that he's serious and that we can have confidence that he will keep his promises to us. So every single time you struggle with your sin, every single time you're wondering, does God love me? Does God care about me? Have I sinned too much beyond grace? The Lord has sworn. He's not gonna change his mind. This one's the priest. Come to him. Pour out your heart to him. Confess your sins to him. Turn to him. Jesus is an ever-living priest. He says, you are a priest forever. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what he, that's what he does. If I, if, you know, if I was to ask you, if you come up to me and say, what is... What does your job look like as a pastor? What do you do? What are you about? And I'd say, well, I, you know, I show up at the office, I prepare material, we record stuff, you know, I teach, preach, you know, visit people. That, I would kind of give you the lowdown of my job description. And you could do the same for me, uh, where you work. And if we were to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you do every day? What's it look like? What's a, day to, what's a, what's a normal day on the job look like for Jesus right now? Interceding in heaven always. Praying all the time for you and me. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. Interceding, ever living. He is a priest forever. He's a triumphant priest as well. Remember, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he has defeated all his foes. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I, Jesus saying about himself, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, Jesus Christ has done it all for us. God 
does not want your sacrifices and your offerings to try to atone for sin. He doesn't want your, if you're going to come to God and try to atone for sin, he doesn't, he doesn't want your, I'm going to try to do betters. He doesn't want your, I'm really, really, really seriously sorry this time. That's not what he wants. That can't atone for sin. He doesn't want, I'll do better, I'll try harder, I'll be more serious, I'll be more holy, I'll read my Bible every day, I'll love people, I'll come to church every single time. He doesn't want that. Those sacrifices and those offerings God has not desired. They cannot make you right with God. We are made right with God by the will and the body and the person of Jesus Christ alone. Horatius Bonar, an old writer, has this wonderful hymn that I love. Um, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fears depart. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. Remember, the rock of age is not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears, no respite, no. Could my, or I guess my zeal, no respite, no. My tears forever flow. These for sin could not atone. Not your tears, not your sorrow, but Jesus' tears, Jesus' blood, Jesus' sweat, Jesus is dying, Jesus is righteousness, Jesus dying, Jesus rising, Jesus ascended, Jesus coming back. That's what saves you. That's what saves you. Jesus has triumphed over all these things through his cross. Lastly, Jesus is seated as our priest. He is a seated priest over our greatest fears. He is seated over sin, death, hell, the devil, and your own heart. The writer to the Hebrews makes a big deal of the fact that in this uh, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's not simply talking about Jesus in his role as king, but also Jesus in his role as priest. Remember, the old priests the Levites, could they ever really say, it's finished? No. They offered sacrifices every day, and on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, they kept offering those sacrifices. And all of the purifications that they did could only cleanse the body, but could not cleanse the soul and the conscience from dead works. And you today need to know this, that while it's good for you to go and to seek help for wherever you can, to seek help from, like we said, therapists, counselors, all those things. What you ultimately need is a priest. Because it says this, he purifies our consciences from dead works. And he's washed our bodies with pure water. He's cleansed us. We're no longer dirty, 
but we have been washed. We've been bought with a price. We have been made new because the priest has made us clean. The priest has cleansed us. You need a priest. And the good news is, is God's already given them to us. He sent them 2,000 years ago. And Jesus Christ is seated. It is finished. And he's seated as priest victoriously over your sin. Over death. Over the devil and over your very own heart that is so rotten. And the old Adam that still remains. But he's seated over it. He makes atonement for us. I want to close with one last hymn that I love. Another Wesley one. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Some of you are scared still. Some of you still don't believe that Jesus really loves you. Some of you still don't know that you really need a priest. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming blood, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Lastly, the last verse is, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Today, you have a priest. He's been given to you to make use of, to receive and to believe on, to draw near to God with confidence that he is able to cleanse you from all of your sins. His his death is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And when you come to this priest, he will not turn you away. Remember the, right after Jesus speaks at the Sermon on the Mount and uh, a leper comes to him. You remember what the leper says? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you want to. Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. See, Jesus is able and willing to touch sinners and make us clean because he has no fear of becoming tainted by us, but he has every bit of power to make us holy like himself and to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to bring us back to God. Let's pray together to our great high priest as he prays for us, and then we will sing another song. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of scripture. We thank you that we have a priest forever, whoever lives above for us to intercede. We pray that as he 
prays for us and has always prayed for his people, that our eyes and our hearts and our wills and all that we are would see him seated, triumphant, and interceding for us. For Christ's sake alone, amen.